Well, hello again and welcome to another series of Bible studies. I'm calling this series Raising the Bar. You'll recognise this as a, a metaphor from the world of athletics where a high jumper will leap two metres if they're very skillful and then the judges will raise it by one centimetre to see if they can clear a slightly higher bar. And I'm using this as a title for the Sermon on the Mount. Many people in England have or many people in the English-speaking world, I should say, have heard of the Sermon on the Mount. Some have read it, even fewer have understood it, and very, very few people manage to obey it. General Omar Bradley, who was a United States general during World War II, said, we have grasped the mystery of the atom and have rejected the Sermon on the Mount. Surely this is the greatest recorded sermon of Jesus and I feel it totally unworthy to set about trying to explain it. I, I feel inadequate, I even feel impertinent in trying to explain it to others. But I think it does need to be explained. In Matthew chapter 3 verse 1, John the Baptist said, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. And in chapter 4 verse 17, Jesus said, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. And in both cases, Luke translates this as, repent for the kingdom of God has come near. I assume since you're watching this program that you have been born into the kingdom of heaven. I presume that you want to live well in the kingdom. And I'm sure you find it difficult living up to kingdom standards. The Sermon on the Mount tells us what kingdom life is like, and it's not easy. There's no compromise with Jesus. Just look at chapter 5, verse 48 of Matthew's Gospel. Be perfect, even as your Father is in, in heaven is perfect. Perfect? What? Me? You? Surely the bar has been raised so high, it's unattainable. Jesus doesn't begin with a set of new rules or a set of new commandments. It doesn't begin with what he expects kingdom people to do. It begins with what kingdom people are. He tells us how kingdom people should be. He knows that what we do comes out of what we are. To Jesus, you are a human being before you are a human doing. And so he begins by explaining to us what he wants us to be. Let me read chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them. The Sermon on the Mount you find in Matthew chapter 5, 6 and 7 and you can find a shorter version of it in Luke chapter 6. Just as Moses had received the old covenant laws, from God on a mountain. So Jesus is about to deliver the new covenant laws on a mountain. And he delivered it to his disciples. Both Matthew and Luke are at pains to show that Jesus is speaking these words to his followers, to his learners. The, word, the Greek word for disciple is the word from which we get the word maths. And I'm sure you all thoroughly enjoyed learning some maths at school to one level or another. The word disciple reminds us that we are learners of Jesus, followers of his. 
And kingdom people are going to have to show new attitudes to God and to life. Remember, what you are precedes what you do. And so Jesus taught them eight new attitudes for kingdom people. Let me read again from chapter 5 of Matthew. Jesus said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will show mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Jesus presents us with these eight blessings. We know them these days as the Beatitudes, or what Billy Graham called these eight beautiful attitudes, like eight pearls, not meant to be sitting in a box, rattling around, never being seen, but strung together in a row as a lovely necklace, interconnected, each one related to the next one, not a pick and mix, we're not to pick some and leave out others. God blesses those who have these attitudes. And the first is God blesses the poor in spirit. In other words, those who know that they are spiritually poor, those who know that in the eyes of God they are paupers, they have nothing to bring to God to persuade God to be nice to them. The old hymn writer said, Nothing in my hand I bring, Simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly, wash me saviour or I die. Like the tax collector in the parable, Jesus said he stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. He knew he had nothing to bring to God other than his sins and his faith that God might be merciful. And this is how you got saved in the first place. You came to a point of spiritual poverty. You came to a point where you realised you had to rely on Jesus alone for blessing. You had to put aside all your pride and come in total humility with nothing to offer and ask God to have mercy upon you for your sins. Like the prodigal son who returned and said, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Jesus wants you to be poor in spirit. You have no religious merit to help you build up a bank balance to bring you into credit with God. You will only be blessed by God if you recognise that you're spiritually poor. And the reward for this Jesus says, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Membership of God's eternal kingdom. Jesus chose to be a poor man. He never owned a house. He never drove a cart. He didn't wear any jewellery. He carried no money. 
At his execution, he owned just one long shirt. And his spiritual poverty was shown by his choices. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, for your sakes he became poor, so that through his poverty you might become rich. In Philippians chapter 2, being in very nature God, he did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant. Jesus, although he could have been rich in spirit, chose to be poor in spirit. Recognise your poverty in the eyes of God. Never come to God with any arrogance. Never bring any boasting to God. Never come to God in a spirit of vanity. Don't come to God in a spirit of self-reliance. Be like Jesus, poor in spirit. Those who are poor in spirit will go on to mourn. Verse 4, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Some translations translate blessed as happy, so that makes it as happy are the sad. Well, that seems to be a very strange contradiction. How is it, why is it that God blesses those who, are, who mourn? It's nothing to do with funerals. It's nothing to do with bereavements. This pearl is linked to the one that came before it. If you recognise your spiritual poverty, you will grieve over your sinful nature. If you come to God and see him on all his purity and holiness, you'll be broken up inside that you fall so far short of his standards. Confession, poor in spirit, has to be followed by contrition, mourning over sin. Going back to the tax collector, praying in the temple, God be merciful to me, sinner that I am. Like King David, who broke five commandments in one fell swoop, he coveted his neighbour's wife, he slept with her, he stole her from her husband, and he had her husband murdered, and he lied all about it. And how did he react? He said, I have sinned against the Lord, and he turned to fasting and prayer. And he wrote Psalm 51, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me against you. You only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. David was mournful over his sins. Jesus himself had no personal sins to mourn over, but he mourned over the sins of his people. In Luke chapter 13, we read, Jesus is speaking, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you are not willing. Look, your house is left to you desolate. I tell you, you will not see me again, until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And then again in Luke chapter 19, as Jesus approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it, 
and said, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognise the time of God's coming to you. Jesus recognised the deep, disobedient sin of his own people and he knew of the consequences that were going to come, that Judah would be destroyed as a state, that Jerusalem, the capital city, would be destroyed by the Romans and the temple as God's house on earth would be ransacked by the Jewish enemies. It broke his heart and he wept over the sin of his people. In the kingdom of God, people mourn over their sins and their comfort, forgiveness, assurance, peace, the gift of eternal life. For those who mourn will be comforted. Now we come to the most misunderstood word in the whole of the Old Testament. Reading again from Matthew 5, verse 5, Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Sixteen times in the New Testament, this word meek or meekness appears. It's always translated as meek or meekness by the authorised version. More modern versions vary the translation, meek, gentle, humble, kind. You sense the meaning, the richness of the meaning of this word. Somebody who is meek isn't flabby. They're not the kind of person who makes peace at any price. They haven't got a weak and wobbly personality. They don't behave like a human doormat. It takes a lot of strength, as we shall see, to be meek. If you come to God poor in spirit, you're saying you have no merit. If you come to God sad over your sinful hearts and behaviour, you won't come to God full of self-confidence and boasting and making high claims for yourself. You will come to God in a spirit of meekness. You will come to God treading softly. You will be respectful in the presence of God. You will come to the Lord humbly. Not like the Pharisee in the same parable we referred to earlier in the temple. God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, a robber, an evildoer, an adulterer, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. Oh God, oh what a good boy am I. That's not meekness. You can't make yourself meek. Paul tells us that being meek is a fruit of the Holy Spirit. Translated in the NIV as gentleness. Jesus promises blessing for the meek. In Psalm 37 he quotes that psalm. The meek will inherit the land and enjoy great peace. Jesus says the meek will inherit the earth. Now is this the millennium? Or is it the new heaven and the new earth? Or doesn't it matter tuppence? The promise of Jesus is the meek will inherit a great blessing. Do I need to persuade you that Jesus was meek? 
The only place in which he described his own character, in Matthew chapter 11, he said, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am meek, gentle, says the NIV, and humble in heart. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul says, By the meekness of Christ, I appeal to you. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, the great love chapter, love is meek or kind in the New International Version. Jesus had every right to be a big head. Jesus had every right to strut around as proud as a peacock. Jesus had every right to be what, like one of the all-powerful despots we have in today's world, today's autocrats who seem to think they're messianic figures. Jesus was meek enough to wash men's feet. He was meek enough to have his own feet washed by a sex worker. He calls upon us to be meek. When Andy, our relatively new pastor, was called to be the leader of Derby City Church, I wonder what his reaction was when somebody picked up the phone and said, Andy, would you consider going to Derby to lead the church there? Do you think he thought to himself, oh, at last, they've recognised abilities. I've been waiting for this. Do you think he reacted in a bombastic way, saying, oh, yes, I'm better than all the other candidates in the whole of the Ealing denomination. Thank goodness they've recognised me at long last. Or do you think he had a sense of unworthiness? Do you think he felt like Paul who said, who is sufficient for these things? Do you think he felt to himself, wow, why me? There's all sorts of other men or women who could have been called, and yet I've been asked to do it. How come? I have no doubt that Andy reacted in a meek manner. Blessed are the meek, but it takes a lot of strength to be meek. Kingdom people who know they have no religious riches, kingdom people who are grief-stricken over their own sinful hearts and lives, and kingdom people who come humbly to God without any boasting, meekly to seek his grace. Kingdom people long to be righteous. It says there in verse 6, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. You know, there is a vertical and there is a horizontal aspect to righteousness. Vertically, we long to be righteous with God. We long for that day when God looks upon us and says, you're okay, you're right, you're justified, you're forgiven. I treat you as if you were as good as my son. And we call that justification. And then there's the horizontal aspect to righteousness, whereby because we've been put right with God by grace through faith, we therefore want to be in right relationships with all others whom we meet. And that is called sanctification. Kingdom people long to be free from all the sin and selfishness which is in their hearts. Kingdom people long to be positively holy. Jesus says they hunger and they thirst for this. They're desperate to be righteous. It's their preoccupation. Have you seen pictures on the, on the television of little children in a basement in Ukraine screaming their lungs out because of the pain in their belly? 
and the first in their mouths. You've seen similar pictures of children, people in Afghanistan, screaming with pain because they have nothing to eat. Jesus said, kingdom people are desperate to be righteous. It is their preoccupation. And their reward? They will be filled. God gives the gift of righteousness to all those who look up to him in faith, in Jesus, and he justifies them. And then God begins to change their lives so that they live right lives with all those with whom they come in contact. Do I need to persuade you that Jesus is the most righteous person who ever lived? He never sinned, so he was always righteous with his father, he never sinned, so he was always right with his neighbours. He never sinned, he was even always in the right with his enemies. Jesus always did what was right. Jesus always reacted in the right way. Jesus always thought right. Jesus' motives were always right. Hebrews chapter 1 says, You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God has anointed you with the oil of joy. Do you ache? Do you hunger? Do you thirst to be right with God and to be living a righteous life? Jesus was recruiting learners to join his kingdom. He called them disciples. Before he told them what to do, he told them what to be. Because for kingdom people, what you are precedes what you do. Being precedes your doing. He says, be poor in spirit. Be mournful over your sins. Be meek before God. Be hungry for righteousness. Notice how each of these beatitudes is the opposite of pride. For kingdom people, being would precede doing. What you be comes before what you do. And what you be is enshrined in these beautiful attitudes. Be poor in spirit. Be mournful over sin. Be meek before God. Be hungry for righteousness. Ravenous to be in the right with God and with others. In a word, be like Jesus. Your reward? Membership of the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. A membership that lasts forever. Your reward, comfort for your conscience because you are forgiven and justified before God. Your reward, a resurrected body which will inherit the earth. Your reward, righteousness with God and with your neighbour. You will be satisfied. Jesus has raised the bar. Jesus is telling us we need to be more like him than we are at the moment. Jesus is telling us we need to be nearer perfect, like that Father in heaven is perfect, than we are today. Jesus is calling upon us to have hearts and minds and lives which are like his. Poor in spirit, mournful, meek and ravenous for righteousness. May God bless you as you meditate upon these thoughts. Amen.